Amen. Thanks for being here. I want you to have a seat. Tell a person on your right, welcome to church. Tell a person on your left, I'm, I'm feeling fried chicken, chicken fried steak, something fried and delicious, and throw green beans in there for health purposes. The next few months, I'm going to walk us through the church, and uh, our other teaching pastors are going to walk us through the book of Proverbs, but I want to talk about the church, and so I brought two scriptures that will kind of be our rallying point every week that I am with you, uh, which will hopefully be a lot. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, and Psalm 92, verse 13. I, I want you to actually read these out loud with me as we get started this morning. Ephesians two 19. Let's read this together. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, Psalm 92, verse 13, it's talking about the righteous. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So you may have noticed very quickly as we read that together, that there's a progression. Uh, You start as a stranger, You are outside of God's family. Now, that's not something that you hear a lot. In fact, what you mostly will hear is that um, we're all God's children. And that's a beautiful sentiment. But that's just not actually true. What is true is that you and I are born outside of the family of God. We are God's creation. No doubt about it. The scripture says that he knit you together while you were in your mother's womb. But you become a child of God. You become a son of God. Or a daughter, you get into the house of God, not based on how you were born, but by believing in the name of Jesus. That's what John chapter 1 verse 12 says, that he gave those who believed in his name the right, the opportunity, the privilege to be called the sons and daughters of God. So there's a progression. You were born a stranger outside of God's family and house, but then when you believed in Jesus, you became a part of the family. And then the next progression from Psalm 92 is that then you would plant roots. You would be planted in the house of God. The roots would go down deep. You would feel connected and secure. When I went to college, I actually went to four universities in five semesters. I mean, I'm not going to ask for a round of applause, but that's impressive. We can all agree on that. And this is going to shock you. I wasn't disinvited to any of them, just on my own free will. The last college I attended, I attended out of love because I was going to school in Missouri where God's presence lives. And, uh, but my wife, uh, my love, the love of my life, she was from Texas. And so I was moving to Texas. There was no doubt about that. So I just transferred schools and ended up at Houston Baptist University. But I had a, a full-time job where they only you know, thought they would pay me part-time and I had a house off of campus. And so really the only thing that I would do at school is I would show up, go to class, get back in my car, and, and leave. So I was always the first one to leave class. You know how, how when the professor dismisses, some people kind of linger around and they ask about each other's weekends and all that. Not me. It was like, you can go, boom, I'm gone. I'm already in my car. If I could get out early, then I, I would have actually tried to do that. So this is going to shock you. I don't know what any of my college you know, classmates are doing with their lives. I don't remember their names. If one of you is here today, please let me know. I'd like to have a little reunion. I, I don't have any relationships from that university experience. You know why? Because I was the last one there and I was the first one to leave. So if you look around and you're like, man, I love this church, uh, or I like this church, but I don't really know anybody, and no one really likes me. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Don't be the first one to leave. 
In fact, let's have a competition for the next couple of months that we will not be the first one in our car and out of there. We'll, we'll form a long line. You go first. No, you go first. No, no, I'm not going first. Because here's how I know the people who have made it all the way in to the core of the church is they linger. That's how you know that you're in the core of your family. That's how you know that you're in the core of your workplace. That's how you know you're in the core of your friendship group is there's lingering. You don't rush out. You don't leave at the first opportunity. You stay and you have conversations. So I just want to challenge you. If you're like, man, I I really don't know anybody and I want to know somebody. You may be like me and be like, I don't, honestly, I don't really want to know anybody. I'm fine. My life is great. And I mean, I'm sure you're wonderful, but uh, I was fine without you. And so I just assume that I'll be fine continuing without you. Maybe you're like me and you're feeling that way today. Like I come to church to worship, to receive the word. And then that's it. I got enough people And that may be true, but there's going to come a moment in this next year where you're going to need the people of God to come around you. You're going to need a text message of encouragement. You're going to need somebody to drop a basket of fruit and food and chocolate off on your front step anonymously because you're going through a really rough time. Somebody in this room is going to lose somebody that they're very close to and you know who's going to come to the viewing. You know who's going to come around you at the funeral. Your church family does that. And so right now in your life, you may be like, well, I don't really need anybody and so I don't mind being the first one to leave and I really don't mind that I don't know anybody. That may be great for right now. But you're going to need the people of God. And they're your family because you were a stranger, but then you believed in Jesus. So now you're in the house of God and you want to go the next step. You want to plant roots and you plant roots by showing up Sunday after Sunday, opportunity after opportunity, and just lingering, just sticking around and not rushing out. And then what's the last progression? They flourish in the house of God. That means to bear fruit. means ideally that you would look around on Sunday morning at things that are going on here, and you would be able to say, I have a part in that. You walk down to the kids' ministry, and you see in those amazing um, children soaking in the Word of God and letting it go in all the way down deep into their hearts, coming out, quoting Scripture, and just having a great time. You want to be able to say, I'm a part of that. That's some of the fruit because I I lead a small group Sunday after Sunday with, you know, eight-year-old boys and it's crazy and I don't think they're getting anything. But this one, this one Sunday, I asked the question and they actually answered. Most of the time they look at me like I'm an alien, but they answered me this time. That's God's work. That's some fruit. You want to be able to look around and and say, I have my name on that. I'm a part of that. That's me flourishing in God's house. There's a progression there. And so I just want to ask you, where are you in that progression? Maybe you're honest and you're like, man, I, I, I think maybe I'm still a stranger. I'm outside the family of God. I don't think my name is written in any book of life. I, I'm outside. Uh, maybe you would be like, I, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm a follower of Jesus, but that's about it. I, I haven't planted roots. Or maybe you're able to say, not only have I planted roots, I can see the fruit everywhere I go around here. You know, all of us, I think, you know, are agree that, being a part of the church is a good thing. I mean, if you didn't, you wouldn't be here, right? I mean, I doubt very many of you, you know, were forced to come. Maybe some husbands are like, man, I was actually, I was forced to come here. You know, she threatened me pretty good. Um, So I think we would all agree, but we're all busy, right? We all have a lot going on. And so sometimes church is not a priority for us. And it makes total sense. I mean, because you have 
you know, you have your kids, right? And your kids are really important. Um, and they've got a lot of stuff going on. They got school going on because you have to do their homework. Amen? Amen. It's their homework, but somehow it ends up being your homework. My son is eight, and I have a lot of homework to do because he's a boy, and I have to be like, let's do number one. Let's do the second part of number one. This four-step process, apparently, you've done two steps, so we're not moving on to the next one. It's my homework, right? So you got your kids, you got their school, right? You have your thing, you got work going on, right? You, that's not optional. You've got to show up there. You've got to be there tomorrow. Sometimes you've got to work more than you want, right? You've got your other family, you know, you've got your, your wife and your parents and your grandparents and your brothers and sisters, and maybe you feel responsible for them. You've got a lot going on. You, you know, we have um, hobbies. We've got things that are fun to do. You like to hunt. You like to fish. You like to go to games. We've got those things. Um, there's stress, a lot of stress. In fact, let's make this big one stress, right? A lot of stress going on, and that wears you out. Well, when you need, you got stress, then you need rest, right? And so sometimes you wake up on Sunday, and you're like, man, I really want to go to church, but I am so tired, and I literally have only, you know, 12 more hours today to take a nap because it's Sunday, but I really need to get a head start at 11, right? So I'm already asleep by 11.30, and then can have the rest of the day to myself, so I got to rest. I can't come to church. I got to rest, right? And then, uh, I mean, what else do we have? We we have sports. We got sports going on. Jackson is on a, is on a flag football team. In fact, his coaches are here today, which is amazing. Uh, Pastor Robbie is one of his coaches. I sent him an email yesterday about playing time. I wasn't real happy about that. <laughs> or have a good time. Your kids got sports. You like sports, and they're demanding. And it's one opportunity for your kids to succeed and feel important. And so we got all this stuff going on, right? And it's crowded. Our life is crowded. If your life is crowded right now, can you say amen? Amen. Amen. There's not one person in here that's like, you know what? Honestly, I don't have anything to do this week. (laughs) I just don't. I just just, got zero things to do. Everything is roses. I walk home. My wife, you know, throws petals on me like a returning emperor. And, you know, this is my life is great. I just got space. No, we're all overbooked. And most of this stuff is great stuff. It wasn't like we're like, you got to get drunk on Thursday and you got to step out on your spouse on Friday. It's not any of that. It's good. It's kids. It's family. It's, you know, work. It's fun. It's sport. It's, it's, all, it's good. But it's so good that we have... Limited space for the church. Our life is so crowded that we have graciously given over one and a half hours to church in our very crowded life. And honestly, when we get up to the hour and 30 minute mark, everybody gets squirmy. Why? Because our life is crowded. And I don't know if that's your fault. And uh, I don't know if it's my fault. It's just reality. And nothing that we say here this morning is going to change any of this. When you leave, this is all going to be true. But I want to show you something else that's true. Ephesians chapter 5.
It's going to be a pretty familiar passage, but you've heard it 99% of the time in the context of marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So essentially, we just read a marriage passage, but at the end here, Paul goes, I know I've been talking about marriage, but what I'm really talking about, what's really important here, what's really weighty is Christ and the church. So I want to go back and read through it slower and filter out all the marriage parts, not because they're bad, they're very good. And if you order your home like this, the favor of God will be on your home. Doesn't mean everything will be easy, but it's the order of God. God always has an order of, of for everything. He has an order for the church, he has an order for home, he has an order for your business. And this is some of his order. And good things happen when you put your life in order according to the word of God. But let's filter out all the marriage stuff and just focus on Jesus and the church. This is what it says in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So it says that Jesus is the head of the church, means that he's the authority of the church. We look to him for direction. We look to him for guidance. We look to him for the way. Christ is the head of the church, his body. So the church is his physical presence on earth. He ascended up into heaven, but he did not leave the earth in wanting. He left the church. We are his physical representatives on planet earth. So if you have a coworker that says, you know, I really don't know the, you know, about Jesus. I don't know that it's a good fit for my life. I, I don't know if it's a credible thing for me. That is a church problem. The church has not done its job. If you know someone in your life that it's like, I've heard the truth of Jesus. I just don't see, uh, see it and, and I don't see its relevance for my life. That's our fault as the church because we are his physical representatives on planet earth. We are his body. And then he says, and is himself its savior, which we'll mention in just a second. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus loves the church. He cares about the church. And how does he love the church? And gave himself up for her. See, the truth is that you are a stranger to the family of God, uh, but The reason you were a stranger is because Ephesians chapter 2 says that you were dead in your sins. So that's how you were born. You felt like you were born alive, but really, spiritually, you were born dead and and separated from God. But Jesus' death was so powerful that when he died, your eternal death died with him. 
He took the sting out of your eternal death with his death on the cross. So when he was raised from the dead, then you were raised with him. And now you're a part of the church. And who did he give himself up for? Who did he offer his life on the cross for? He offered it for the church. He is our savior. So what that means for us is we are not a religious self-help community. This is not primarily about you being a better mommy or daddy, although that's a great thing. This is not primarily a gathering about you being a better husband or a better wife. This is not primarily a gathering about you ordering your finances according to the biblical way, although I hope that happens. This is not about you learning to be a better manager or a better employee according to the standards of God, although I hope that happens. We are a community of those who were dead, and then Jesus died, and now he's alive, and now we're alive, and we come together week after week to remind ourselves that because sometimes I forget that because I feel very alive. And I feel very self-sufficient. And I feel like I can handle my own business. So I need to get together with you. And you need to get together with me. And we need to get together with the word of God to remind ourselves, oh my gosh, the gospel is life and death to us. Literally, we were dead. And then Jesus died. And now we are alive. We are a community of resurrected people. We are not a community of religious people trying to get better. You can go a lot of places to find that. This is a place where we declare the power of the cross of Jesus. Because Jesus gave himself up for the church. And we remind one another that and then we reorient our lives accordingly. And why did he give himself up for the church? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. To sanctify means that you were common. You were the same as every other person on planet earth. I know your grandma told you different, but you were the same. And so was I. We were common. But now Jesus lives in us, and so we get set apart. We're no longer common. We are holy. We are sanctified. We are set apart. And this is the work that God is doing in you. This is the work that Jesus is doing in you right now and in the church. He's making us more and more holy. He's cleansing us is what he says. There's some imagery here of a a Jewish uh, marital ritual, which is called the bridal bath. Of course, Jesus was Jewish, and the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the Ephesians, is Jewish. And so every new bride, she would have a ceremonial bath before her wedding. It was just a symbolic thing to say, I'm pure, and I am committed, and this is, I'm making an exclusive commitment to this man that I'm getting ready to marry. And so biblical scholars believe that maybe Paul's reaching into some of this imagery to say to us as a church that... That, that we want to be pure, that we want to be holy, that we want to be set apart, that we want to be sanctified, that we should be asking questions as we do things. Is this something that somebody who's being sanctified with the church should do? Is this something that somebody who's holy with the church should do? Because that's the work that is happening. And, and how is it happening? It's happening by the washing of water. It should remind you right now of your baptism. 
You're like, well, I don't have a baptism. Then you need to be baptized because your baptism is a demonstration of the gospel. And it's not just a symbol. It's not just a, oh, hey, everybody, I'm letting everybody know I'm a Christian now. There's a sanctifying element to you. When you go down under the water, what you're saying practically and spiritually is I was dead. But then Jesus died and I have come up out of the water because he has come up out of the grave and I am alive. It's a sanctifying moment. It's a way that God sets you apart from everything that is common. And so if you're like, I've never been baptized, then you need to be baptized. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because Jesus is setting you apart as a part of the church. And how is he doing that as well with the water, but also with the word? And the word here is specifically meaning the proclamation that Jesus Christ has come to earth, has lived in our shoes, died the death that was reserved for us, was put in the grave, was raised from the dead, has ascended into heaven, and will one day return. That message, the hearing of it, and the receiving of it sets us apart. And makes us holy. And why is he setting us apart and making us holy? Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. What this means is that when Jesus said, what reward do I want as a reward for my faithfulness? For my sacrifice, he said, I want the church. Now, I don't know what kind of self-confidence that you came in the room with, but I'm thinking in light of of Jesus' painful and agonizing death on the cross and the the perseverance and tenacity of his sinless life. I'm thinking that him, you know, being in heaven and, and God the Father saying, and here is your reward, Curtis Jones, not a good reward. You know, and, and sub your own name in there. I, I just don't know that we are that great a reward. But apparently we are. We are his payment, reward, prize for his sacrifice and his faithfulness. That's how much he loves the church. That's how much he values the church. This is what he wants is the church. And skip a few verses. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Jesus nourishes the church, means he provides for the church. He looks out for the church. He protects the church, which is why we'll never beg you for money. We don't need your money. You need to give your money for your own obedience to God and your commitment to his house. But the church organization does not need your money. You know why? Because Jesus provides for the church. And he cherishes the church. You know what it means to cherish? It means to love something just because you can. No obligation. No responsibility. You just love it because it makes you happy to love it. And Jesus loves the church. So what do we learn from Ephesians chapter 5? This is what we learn. We learn that Jesus gave his best for the church. 
So let's not give our least to the thing that he gave his most to, which is really where most of us are at. Our lives are so crowded with real things that we end up giving our best to our kids. We end up giving our best to work. We end up giving our best to what makes us happy and fun. We end up giving our best to school. We end up giving our best to our family. We end up giving our best to a circle of friends. We end up giving our best to this and to the thing that Jesus gave his best to, we end up giving the least to. I mean, think about how many excuses did you need the last time you didn't come to church? I mean, did it take two? Did it take sports and rest? Or did it just take sports? Or did it take uh, my hobby and I had a long week at work? Or did it just take my hobby? Did it take uh, my kids really don't want to come and I'm not going to pressure them to come because that's not the kind of dad I want to be. That's the kind of dad mine was and I'm not going to be that kind of dad. My mom drug me to church so I'm not dragging my kids to church. So my kids, I'm not coming and I'm pretty tired. So kids and rest, it's good enough to not come. And listen, this is, this is me too. I'd, I'd skip all the time if I could but it's my job so I can't. So I got work and I got my hobby and it's so... This is no judgment. It's just the conviction that I've been giving bare minimum to something that Jesus gave maximum for. And my soul is ripped in two. Because I don't love it the way that he loved it. And you're like, well, of course I don't love it. I've been hurt by the church. The church hurt me. And here's what I want to say to you. I want you to look me in my eye. Me too. Me too. And the person next to you, and the person next to you, and the person next to them, and the person next to them. In fact, if you've been hurt by the church, we're going to have a little powwow out in the parking lot while we wait to not be the first ones to leave. (laughs) We're just going to go over there, and we're just going to be together. Church hurt me. Yeah, church hurt me. Church hurt me too. And here's what would happen. We'd all get up, and we'd just all go out there. You know who else was hurt by the church? Jesus. By his stripes, we were healed. Meaning my wounds, my wounds caused his wounds. My punishment that I deserved for all of my secrets and all my twisted up thinking and all of my brokenness, that is what put Jesus on the cross. Jesus has been the most hurt by the church. And so if your excuse is, I don't want to connect, I'm not giving my most because of what the church has done to me, then we need to follow in line with Jesus who was hurt the most and yet gave the most. It's time for us to stop making good excuses and they are good excuses. But there is never a good reason to give your least to what Jesus cares about the most. And that's how you get to Psalm 84 when the psalmist says some pretty ridiculous things in our line of thinking. Psalm 84, verse 10. This is what the scripture says. For a day in your courts... 
One day in your temple, one day in your presence, one day in your house is better than a thousand days elsewhere. Now, you may be like, well, I don't know if coming to church is like better than a thousand days at Disney World. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. I don't know if uh, coming to church for one day is better than going to to a Texans game for a thousand games. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would cost, but but it's probably better than coming to church. And it's just good stewardship if I'm going to buy the the season tickets, you know. So a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, you may be like, well, of course I'd rather come to church than hang out with wicked people. But if you read the Psalms, then you know that with the tents of the wicked, the psalmist is always talking about how they're prospering. And that's the, the psalmist's biggest beef in the scripture is I'm trying to live faithful and I don't feel rewarded, but these wicked people over here are just doing what they want, when they want, how they want, and it seems like all your favor and goodness is coming down on them. And so that's what the tense of the wicked means. It means that I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd play, rather play one small role in God's house than to go and have prosperity doing my thing when I want and how I want, however I want. Some of us need to reorganize and start keeping some doors in the house of God. Some of us need to start flourishing. Some of us need to start offering more than our bare minimum. This past week, I was sitting on the couch and Amanda came in with our shoebox. Now, you probably don't have our shoebox at your house. You maybe have a shoebox, but we have our shoebox. Because when we got engaged, I didn't have any money to do like a super elaborate big proposal with like helicopters and sky riding and all of those kinds of things. Uh, Literally, I'd spent all of my money on buying her the ring. I went to the bank and I withdrew all the cash in my bank account and they gave it to me in 20s and I had this you know big stack of money which was awesome and I made them give me some smaller bills so the stack felt even bigger and I went down and I plopped it down in the ring store and I was like I want with all my cash because I'm a high roller I want the cheapest ring that you have right there <laughs> and uh and so I bought the ring so I didn't I literally had zero dollars and but what I did have was I had kept a bunch of notes cards pictures some of that stuff from our relationship history. And so I put it all in a shoebox. And on the very first card she had ever given me, I wrote on the bottom of it in my own handwriting, a different colored pen, ask me what's in my pocket. And so I take her to this park and I'm showing her through the shoebox and it's sweet and, and uh, it's nice. And we get down to the last card and I make sure that it's the very last thing. And we open it up and she reads it and she's like, oh, it's nice. And she gets this puzzled look on her face, and she says, well, what, what's in your pocket? And I get down on my knee, and I say, will you be my wife forever and ever? Because not even death is getting you out of this thing, you know. And, and she said, yes, of course. And so 14 years later, I'm sitting on the couch last week, and she brings our shoebox in. She had found it in the closet, and so we start flipping through it. And we had shed a few tears the first time we read through it because of how sweet and important it was. And we shed a few tears last week because how cringe-worthy it is. You know what I mean? Like, oh man, I can't believe I said these things. Like, you would have thought that she was royal, some European royalty, based on the number of times I called her princess. And, and so, with everyone, I'm like, oh gosh, oh gosh, and just it's just it's just gross how sweet it is. 
finally, I had to say to her last week, like, I love you, and I would give my life up for you gladly, but we got to stop reading this. I cannot handle it anymore. It's just, ugh, I can't believe, I want to punch myself in the face, you know, that's, well, that's what I feel like I deserve, and, uh, and so we had a good time going through it, but I noticed in there, in all of those notes, not one time in all of that romance and love did I ever say to Amanda, I love you so much because of how you cook grilled chicken. You know? She never once said to me, I love you so much for the $6.25 an hour you're bringing home from your part-time job. You're going to secure such a nice life for us. You know? Not one time did I say, I love you so much because of the way that you do my laundry, those three times that you've ever done my laundry. You know? uh, not one time did I... Did, did, you know, she said to me, I, I love you so much because of the way that you keep your car clean and you also take mine and get it washed. Not one time did, did she say to me, I, I love you so much because of, you know, how you pay all the bills on time. It didn't have anything to do with what we did for one another. And honestly, honestly, God forbid, if I died, Amanda will be fine. You know, she'll be able to do all the stuff that I take care of in our house. Even the money, you know, I'm worth more dead than alive based on our insurance policy. So, you know, if there's kind of shady circumstances, you know where to look first, you know. (laughs) But money's not really going to be an issue. She can take the car and drop it off and get it washed and cleaned. And she can help have somebody help run the kids around. And God forbid that she died. You know, I could figure out a way to feed my children. You know, they make restaurants and McDonald's for such things, and I can hire out somebody to clean the house. I mean, but what I couldn't do is sew back my own life because it will have felt like my body was ripped in two because we are one. And Jesus uses this imagery through Paul to say that he and the church are glued together by his own blood. So it should feel like when you are not a part of the family of God, like you have been ripped into, like that you are not whole, that your life doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. Why? Because there's some jobs that need to be done? No. Because there are some specific needs that need to happen? No. But because Christ gave himself up for the church, and you're going to give yourself up for the church. Because Christ loved the church, you're going to love the church. Because it's not about what you get, and it's not about what you give. It's about who's here, and who is here are the redeemed and resurrected people of God, and the resurrected Son of God. That's why you make the church a priority. He gave his most, so let's give more than our least. Let's pray. So God, stir that in us. Stir that in us, that this is not about obligation, and this is not about what needs to be done. This is about what you have done for the church. And God, I, again, I specifically pray, and I feel like this is who you're really landing on right now. God, I, I, pr- I pray for those who at one time in their life they were giving more 
to the church that you care about so much. And for whatever reason, whatever good reason, they're not anymore. And I pray that you would rekindle a desire to be a doorkeeper in your house. Not that they would do it out of obligation, but that the, the desire would return to them. Lord, I pray for those who are flourishing so much here that they're weary, they're worn out because of all the work they're doing. God, I, I pray that they would find all the fuel they need in your example. And I pray you would give them rest even as you give them work to do. And God, I pray for everyone who in a moment of honesty is saying, I think maybe I'm still a stranger from the family of God. Not because I've not come to church enough, but just because I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I pray that today their name would go in the book. I think I pray that most of all. In Jesus' name.